there's lesbian sports writers, there's lesbian tech writers, like that has nothing to do with, you know, their sexuality has nothing to do with it. But for me, I just happen to really care and love writing about things that are, you know, very specifically queer or affect queer people. So I'm fine with that. Journalists are people too. That's something to keep in mind in these days of identity politics. How deeply does the person we are affect the stories we cover? Should we be concerned? Does it really matter? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Trish Bendix is a writer and editor in Los Angeles, California. She's also the former editor-in-chief of AfterEllen.com and Go Magazine. Recently, Trish wrote an article for BuzzFeed asking whether the LGBT media has a future. Welcome to the podcast, Trish. Thanks so much for having me. So to sort of get the ball rolling here, you know, one of the things I like to do is ask people what their journalist journey is. You know, how did you become a journalist? How did you end up where you're at today? Well, so I've always been writing. I had like my own little neighborhood newsletter that I created for myself when I was young, uh, growing up in Michigan. And I used to attend like summer writing camps. My dad was always a writer as well. So that helped. So once I went to college in Chicago, I went to art school called Columbia College Chicago, I thought I wanted to go into a major called the music business management specifically. But once I went to that overpriced art school, I realized quite quickly, I don't want to do anything with business or management. So that wasn't going to work out. But I did take a class called the impact of the press on the music business that first semester that kind of changed the scope of what I realized I wanted to be doing with music and then eventually other sort of entertainment, pop culture and criticism, which is writing about it and talking about it, helping to let other people know about things and, um, you know, what kinds of things were good, what kinds of things were bad, what kinds of things I think people should know about. And that eventually turned me towards journalism. So I changed my major. I started to do freelance writing. I started getting into internships. I started working at the college newspaper. And it was all at first a lot of music, entertainment journalism. I didn't get into LGBT specific journalism until I went to a panel in which there was a critic named Albert Williams, who now is a theater critic for the Chicago Reader. And he spoke about how he got his start doing theater reviews for uh, gay publications. So at the time in Chicago, it was the Windy City Times or the Chicago Free Press or the Advocate, the you know largest national LGBT magazine. And it just happened to coincide with me coming out and realizing my own sexual identity. And it was of great interest of me and also just sort of a realization that I could then start reporting on, writing about, and writing for, you know, the community that I was becoming a part of. That must have been really, you know, affirming, I guess, to know that, you know, you had this interest in journalism, and then suddenly, you know, this whole part of journalism that that is related to your identity and the things that you're experiencing, and actually being, feeling that you're able to contribute to that, probably had a lot of, you know, meant a lot to you, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's not a secret that music journalism is, especially back in the early 2000s, very dominated by men, straight men, (laughs) straight white men. So it was not always the most ideal situation. I I mean, I was interning at, at magazines where all of my bosses and most of the staff were all straight white guys. And it does dictate the kinds of things that you're able to cover or write about or what's deemed important enough or cool enough. And oftentimes that isn't really anything to do with queer stuff. So I always was finding myself, you know, interested in the more marginalized parts of the music, you know, whether that's a band or something else that, you know, a a trend or, you know, finding 
the things that weren't being written about or spoken about. And those things were, you know, what I found that I, I wanted to be putting my time into, but also that I thought were more deserving of finding their own audiences. So I just kind of leaned into that. And, um, you know, it's not the most profitable as well, I'm sure we'll talk about, but, you know, it was just inevitably where my interests lie. Pardon me, but a lot of this really kind of fascinates me because on the one hand, I'm thinking, you know, if you're trying to pursue a career in, in mainstream journalism and you certainly want to be true to yourself and who you are and what your life experience is, I mean, do you, do you ever, did you ever feel resentment or, or bad that, that people perceived you as, as the queer writer that, oh, here's a story we should have her do it? Or was that even sort of a consideration? I'm one of those people that I actually never thought, saw that as a bad thing. I was, I'm happy when people come to me with an assignment and say, I think you're the person to write this. And I, I actually, that's how this Buzzfeed story came to me was as soon as I was let go and in a public fashion. And it was my second time I'd been laid off from a media company in the last couple of years. So it was sort of public enough that then Shannon Keating, the LGBT editor for Buzzfeed reached out and said, would you like to write this story about you know, LGBT media and the, you know, the future of it. And I said, I think I'm too close to this. And she was like, no, that's exactly why I want you to write this story. So, you know, I think that for me, it's always been something that I am happy to do and happy to inhabit a space and a label that I gladly take on. Whereas I know for other people, that's not the case. A lot of people that are writers see it separately. They see it as nothing to do with me as a writer. It, you know, I write about things like you know, there's lesbian sports writers, there's lesbian tech writers, like that has nothing to do with, you know, their sexuality has nothing to do with it. But for me, I just happen to really care and love writing about things that are, you know, very specifically queer or affect queer people. So I'm fine with that. Oh, okay. I, I just want to know if there was any sort of resentment for that, that that was perceived that, that what you only were, but because yeah. I, I guess what you're saying that it, that isn't the case. Well, I mean, it's so funny because right now what I'm doing, my latest sort of regular gig is I'm, I took over the best of late night column at the New York Times. And it's interesting because it has nothing to do with anything that I've done or, you know, my being a queer person, a woman, a feminist, but inevitably you are writing or, you know, you know, as objective as you are, you are as a journalist, like you are still coming from a perspective or a, you know, an identity. So kind of like one of those things where it's, you know, it's still available, I guess. Yeah. Well, it, it is kind of ridiculous, this idea that, and I guess it's just this sort of push that if you're a journalist, if you're like a real journalist, you're supposed to be, you know, dispassionate and, and, you know, you know, sort of separate yourself out uh, from sort of the reality situation. But, you know, you know, as a woman, you walk into a room, people are going to have perceptions of you as a woman, as a white male, people come into, I come into a room, people are going to have perceptions of, of who I am, whether those are mm -hmm. any of those are things are right or wrong. We, we bring with us the, the baggage that we, we have and, and, and to sort of, you know, say that that's, you know, that's who we are or, or try to ignore that. I mean, we all write different types of things. I don't know. I'm not sure what this cul-de-sac is that I'm in, but well, I mean, I think, no, I get what you're saying, but also I think it's fair to point out that straight white guys have been Hold leading on. the news for several. Oh, sorry. Is it gone? Yeah. It get, now it's back. Okay. Just from yeah. when you started talking. Yeah. So the news and, you know, media has been for several years dictated by what we have decided was, the authoritative voice, but most of those voices have been as objective as they have been 
we're from white straight guys for the most part. So if you just think about how we just decided that that was who was allowed to be the neutral voice, but they've still dictated much of what we've had to read or what, you know, what was being covered. So it's definitely um, something to consider in terms of like when you're hiring someone and what their identity is like, is it going to enter into the story? Not necessarily, you know, so easily pointed out, but inevitably it's going to have some kind of effect on what's being covered, how it's being covered and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something we talked a lot about on the podcast is, you know, this, this sort of pursuit, trying to pursue a, a more diverse uh, newsroom, this idea that, you know, if you have the same usual suspects uh, who are running things and even though they may say, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to treat everything fairly. We're, we're going to, you know, make decisions about what stories we're going to cov- cover based on our life experience. The fact that we don't have other types of people involved in the conversation and involved in the decision-making impacts you know, what you're covering and how you're covering it. These other perceptions, you're not, you're not really covering the story, the true story. And you're not really, you're, you're sort of shutting out certain segments of your audience. So anyway, (laughs) so anyway. No, yeah. um, I mean, I think that's like important to say because the stories are going to be better also arguably when you do have all of these different perspectives, all these different takes, all these different people that are allowed to share those, you know? So, I mean, I, I, your story is really good. I the Buzzfeed story for a lot of different reasons. I mean, you talk about the state of the LGBT media, but you also talk a, a bit about the history and there are lots of things that I did not know about the history of it that, you know, a lot of the early publications came out of advocacy, came out of mm-hmm. just trying to share information about where people could meet or whether, you know, when the age crisis occurred, answering questions about that. You know, in America, we've had a history of these black press, you know, addressing the needs of a certain community. At the same time, there's a sort of a mainstream media that's sort of going its own way. And so is the the LGBT media that we have now very different than, than what it's been since, you know, it sort of began in the 60s and 70s? It's hard to say. I think that on the local and regional you know, papers and, you know, some of them have moved online now and magazines as well. I think those are still very true to the, I'm sure all, not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them and especially the ones I was speaking with and, and about in the article, like the Windy City Times, for example, in Chicago, they have been, you know, they've served their communities. They haven't had to really change or alter anything editorially or their content based on what's going to make money or advertising. And they found ways to keep afloat, even though they're not going to be the glossiest or, you know, most sexy or most fashionable. And they've definitely had ups and downs. But I think that in terms of, you know, circulation and and, and how much sort of like visibility they can have, but they're still trusted resources. And I think that's what's the most important when it comes to LGBT journalism is if you are reading something, if you're seeking them out, it's because you are trusting them and you want to get the information from the people that you know are going to do the work and get it done correctly. That doesn't mean that, you know, larger publications aren't going to get it right, but they have a very bad track record of maybe not getting it fully right, but, you know, including a, a different perspective that they think makes it more even. So that's that means that they're speaking to someone about, you know, something about to do with like transgender people, they're always going to then, you know, include someone who opposes the idea of transgender people in such and such situation. And I think that's not, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's fair. 
And I think that LGBT press or minority press dealing with their own, you know, specificities of their communities are just, they realize that, they recognize that, and they're going to do the right job and show the major publications who eventually adapt to these things, especially as, you know, guidelines are given by the GLAD or NLGJA, which is the National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association, you know, when those things are provided to mainstream press, I think that they eventually sort of catch on and see how things should be done. But, you know, there's different editorial policies across the board. And I think a lot of times covering specific communities, if you're someone that's not from that community or not that familiar with the community, there's a good chance you're going to get it wrong because, you know, we just have such a history, uh, you know, of and within our community having so many different kinds of identities, you know, intersecting identities that it's it's almost impossible for someone who's not well-versed in it to get it 100% correct. So before we go into your article, I want to talk a little bit about your career, about uh, your experiences at After Ellen and at Go Magazine, and also Grinder. You were at Grinder yeah. for a while. Tell me about that, how you went from one to the other and, and what types of stories you were working on. So after Ellen was my first full-time journalism job, and you know, just to give you an idea of what time it was at the in the internet, I was called the blog editor. The blog was, you know, supposedly different from the rest of the site's content, although it really, you know, it looked the same. There was nothing really that differentiated it. I think it was just sort of like this is the regularly updated, you know, part of the site. So come to the blog. But the site was created in 2002, so just you know, five years after Ellen came out on national television and in Time Magazine to sort of monitor and critique any lesbian representation, bisexual representation for women in the media, television, movies, because most of the time it was pretty bad. And there was no one, no coverage, no real criticism about how we were being depicted. So the creator, Sarah Warren, launched that site. It grew as the community grew, as you know, at the same, around the same time, you know, Will and Grace was coming to television. So, you know, as the LGBT visibility was growing, the site did as well. So I came on, I was one of four full-time staff members. And eventually, as media, you know, started to take a lot of hits, I ended up being one of only two, and then eventually the only one, having stayed there, becoming editor-in-chief. And the site, it grew to, you know, what used to only have enough fodder for maybe, a couple pieces a week. By the time I was done there, you couldn't even cover everything that was going on in pop culture, entertainment, and media in terms of queer women visibility because it had just grown so so large, which is fantastic and you know a good problem to have to be sure. But the struggle with was always who owned us, which is a problem for any media entity. You know the content and the things that you are able to do or the reach you're able to have is you know due to money, advertising, and that was very difficult at um, LGBT women-specific publication and also being owned by larger entities like Viacom, which was uh, the original owner, and then eventually Evolve Media. Um, they they weren't really able to sell advertising like they wanted to, and um, so eventually they both, you know, sort of gave up and, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, that's. It's not, I don't think that's necessarily something that's. You know, if you're a digital journalist, or you're an online journalist. I mean, that's a pretty typical thing. Is yep. that eventually you run into the money end of it, and yeah. uh, if the numbers don't add up, you know, for whatever reason, you're also an editor at Go Magazine, and you worked at Grinder. Could you tell me about that? Those experiences. Sure. So I uh, briefly went to Go, which is a New York-based LGBT women's magazine, and that's been in print 
for I think around the I think 2002 also the same time around out time after Ellen was launching I was offered this position at Grinder was starting their own LGBTQ digital publication called Into and I you know knew some of the journalists who were hired on there early on Nico Lang a staff writer and Matthew Rodriguez another staff writer who I'd worked with and been colleagues with you know, just sort of like LGBT journalist peers, you get to know each other at conferences and social media and the like. I trusted them and I, I they wanted to bring me on. And, you know, Grindr is typically an app for gay, queer men, as well as trans women and trans men. It really, like, I'm one of the few demographics it does not want to reach. So I was unsure about what I could bring there, but they, they told me that Into was going to be for the entire community. They really wanted to make it you know, a resource and content for LGBTQ people across the board. And so I was excited about that prospect. And so I came in there and I worked there for, I think it was just over a year before Grindr inevitably decided that they didn't want to be doing media anymore. And then they shot into down. Yep. That was interesting. So let me, you know, you know, one of the things when I was reading your article, I noticed that it seemed to be earlier in the last 10 years that media outlets seemed to be much more gung ho about bringing in, you know, L- members of the LGBT community, writing more stories about them and whatnot. You know, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, especially with if you notice how much this administration likes to pick on LGBT people, it's like it was very necessary. But that's that's changed more recently, maybe partly because of this administration and sort of the, the tenet of what's going on in the, the political dialogue in America. There's just a lot more that is happening for us that affects us in our day-to-day lives, which isn't to say that it didn't before, but now it just seems like there's much more of direct threats. And so I think it's become a little bit less of the fun type of the LGBT journalism that we you know were able to do or we were used to doing, which maybe have been more of like celebrity type stuff or who's coming out and things of that nature. Whereas now we, I've noticed that more of the focus has become political. And I think that's saying, I think that's true for a lot of uh, minority communities. Do you see that both in the mainstream press and, and also in the LGBT press? Yeah, definitely. And one thing I think is really interesting is the, the more mainstream press covers anything related to LGBT people, the more that they start to kind of also get the fun stories too, in the way that I mean that where celebrities, you know, major celebrities might use, you know, come out in the advocate or, um, you know, an LGBT publication. Now they're trusting and going to more major publications or, um, tr- you know, they're get So now mainstream publications are getting the stories that we used to have to relegate to LGBT specific press. And so that's both good and bad in the way that you know, LGBT press who have been doing this for a long time feel kind of slighted. You know, if you're a journalist who's been working in this space and you want to get those stories and tell those stories, but then somebody might go to, you know, People Magazine or the New York Times or uh, BuzzFeed or something like that, um, it might be disappointing that they are now sidestepping you and going bigger because they want to reach more people. And so, um, and the reason that that's also difficult is because that's what advertisers do. They think, well, if LGBT people are reading Entertainment Weekly or People, then why do we need to advertise on this small LGBT site or LGBT magazine? And that's what's inevitably hurting LGBT-specific media because they're not getting the financial support. The flip side of that is with the mainstream media, if, for example, to our point earlier about diverse newsrooms, 
you may have editorial staff that is not made up of people from that community. And therefore, the, the scope and the types of stories they're covering and the way they're covering them may not be the most beneficial to, to that audience. Yeah, and I don't think that's true for like all across the board. There's definitely LGBT people and people, you know, specific identities hired at a lot of these publications now. But, you know, it's it still happens and there's still a lot of times where a publication will get something wrong or their lack of specific nuance, especially as it comes to, I'm seeing lately, most often, um, you know, transgender coverage. I mean, we've talked about lots of different things, but partly s- sustainability, partly, you know, the the movement of stories away from the LGBT uh, press into more mainstream media, which on the one hand is good, but on the other hand is causing problems for the LGBT press. Do you see those as the big challenges facing LGBT journalism at this point? Yeah, I think so, because what we're still having to prove ourselves as a viable marketable community. And that's also something that many LGBT people aren't necessarily looking to do. There's always this kind of two factions of LGBT people, people that want to, I don't know if assimilate is the right word, but sort of, you know, play the game, (laughs) the, the money game and, you know, be corporately sponsored and, you know, lean into the sponsorships and things that are what we've always sort of eschewed as queer people that saw ourselves on the margins, you know, don't want a corporate sponsored pride or, you know, it was Stonewall was a riot, that kind of thing. So it's because we started LGBT press started as advocacy. There's always been that very thin line of who are we serving? What is the purpose? And how do we continue to make that happen? Because so many LGBT publications have eventually folded literally because they could not afford to stay open. They couldn't pay themselves. They couldn't pay to print the things. Like it's a very honest concern. The thing is, is that you have to prove your worth to advertisers and marketers and some LGBT people resist having to prove ourselves to, you know, outsiders as marketable or worth money or worth anything. So it's difficult terrain just because there's always going to be you know, accusations of, you know, being sellouts if you, you know, eventually do procure an amount of money from like a Target who is running an LGBT ad or a bank that's trying to reach, you know, gay people with a lovely gay couple in their, you know, in their um, commercials or something of that nature. So especially if a company in the past has, has been known to not be so gay friendly. So it's difficult. I think that some of the publications, like the smaller publications, like I spoke with in my article, are looking to find out what it's like to become a nonprofit, what, if, there's, if it's a possibility of changing the way that you operate so that you can be financially sustainable without having to rely on being you know, the, the hot minority property for the month. Because you'll see in June that there's going to be a lot of corporate sponsors of Pride. And that includes in LGBT press, they're going to want to sponsor content. They're going to be net, want to have their bank ad next to Pride content. But that doesn't always last for the entire year through. They have such small minority press budgets. And then they give you, you know, a tiny bit of a fraction that they would give to somebody else, you know, a more mainstream publication. You have to be thankful for what you get because that's what you, you need to survive. So let me talk to you about your, about you, about your, your, you know, your working journalist, you know, what are your concerns, you know, for the next few years about, you know, the type of journalism you do? Oh, yeah. So I've been doing this now for 
like over about 15, 16 years. So like, I personally feel like in a good place in terms of like, I freelance a lot. So right now I'm, you know, I'm doing the New York Times column Monday through Thursday, and then I contribute to their television section. But then I also freelance for some other publications, including Condé Nast has their own LGBT property called Them. And so I've also been contributing there. So I'm still definitely doing, you know, my queer stuff. But I think the problem that for most people, especially my peers and um, others who have been let go from their own properties in the last couple of years, there not, are not full-time jobs. Journalists are pretty much expected to be freelancers or contractors, and that it means without any sort of benefits. It's definitely something that doesn't pay very well and doesn't pay very quickly. You're going to be waiting for checks. And I know this isn't specific to just LGBT journalists, but it's definitely something that's been happening to them a lot just because they are the first usually to go. The irony of when I was writing my BuzzFeed piece was that same day that it was coming out, they cut all but one of their LGBT vertical employees. So there was this huge sort of boom a couple years ago of mainstream publications or you know Huffington Post launching queer voices. And at the time, they actually had editors dedicated to that section. Now they no longer do. It's more aggregated. BuzzFeed's now you know, existing with just one staff member on that vertical and doing a lot of aggregation from the other parts of BuzzFeed sites that where they might already be covering something that's you know LGBT related. So there are not jobs for us specifically in what we do and the stories we want to tell at a time when they're arguably needed more than ever. The hardest working LGBT journalists I know are doing it for even less money than they've ever probably wanted to accept because they believe in the story and they believe in um, making sure that they're published. Um, you know, so I, I think it really is going back to feeling like activists who are willing to do the work for little money or little recognition. And I think that's really unfair and unfortunate, but I don't really see that changing. I don't know what it would take. It's It's almost like and, and I know that a lot of us dislike that it's when tragedies occur, like when AIDS occurs, when pulse occurs, when something terrible is happening is when all of a sudden mainstream press or publishers or editors are looking for, you know, those writers and, and finally prizing those writers because then they, they know that they can get that story and they want that story. But then it's like, you know, it's a flavor of the week in a way. It's like then, you know, the next week it, we don't need you anymore. So I don't. I don't mean to, I'm usually an optimist, but the problem is, is that I'm not seeing anything currently that makes me feel as if it's going to be changing and people are going to suddenly be hiring full time and looking for people to do, you know, a very specific LGBT kind of journalism. It's interesting. I mean, you, the article you wrote, some of the some of the people that you spoke to, I think uh, you spoke to somebody at the the Windy Windy City, mm-hmm. um, where I mean, they've been doing this for a long time. They've seen the ups and downs, and you know, I, I guess we're in sort of a down here, and that's something we need to, to prepare for. What would you say to to a young journalist, a young queer journalist starting out? You know, what, what advice would you give them? I think that you really have to not necessarily be in this for money. And I know that's difficult to um, say to someone who's trying to make a living doing what they're doing. I'm not saying it's an impossible thing to do. I think that it's definitely necessary. It's needed. We And you can do it. It's just, it is a difficult path to take in that, you know, you used to, when I was going to school, it was like you get an internship, you start writing while you're in college, and then you get out of school and you get a job. 
And it's, it's not that anymore. And people do, you don't even need a journalism degree to be a writer. You know, I'm paying student loans forever. And I, you know, really could have just started freelancing. <laughs> but you know, you make connections, you do the networking, you, you know, you do the things that um, make it worthwhile. But, um, you know, any anyone who wants to do this work, I think you just have to sort of understand that it is going to be a little bit of a passion project in a way that you have to be sort of driven enough to be in that space. And I, I'm all for diversifying. If you don't want to specifically just do LGBT stuff, like I definitely do still a lot of more entertainment um, type stuff um, or, you know, obviously reporting on media things like there's other things that you as a queer person are going to be interested in. Um, outside of just LGBT things. And I think that it, it can all coexist. But in terms of like, if you want to make sure that you are writing, you know, about and for this community, and you are trying to do it for an LGBT space, you're not going to get paid a lot of money. And I don't know if you've seen, but even the largest entity, the Out and Advocate owned by Pride Media, have an entire um, hashtag out O's against them because they haven't been paying writers and contributors for several months now. And their CEO just uh, quit and left to go to Ford Models. And so now I'm sure that they're in sort of a, you know, like, what are we going to do now? And there's always a lot of, and that was out of an acquisition where apparently the former publishers owed a lot of money they sold the company. And then now the, you know, Pride Media is the one that is expected to pay all those contributors. So, you know, it's, we're just one little tiny part of, you know, greater media that's dealing with all of these issues, but it really hits hard when you're already like a much smaller faction. So I guess I, my, I, my advice would just be, you know, the realistic portrait of what media is, and then even more so, uh, you know, minority media, it's, it's definitely difficult, but it's not impossible. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would even just throw in there that, you know, even if you're not covering, you know, LGBT stories or issues, the fact that you're you're somebody from that community who's a working journalist and is pursuing a, a journalism, you know, career helps the cause in a way. Oh yeah. Uh, that you know you're part of a you're part of a newsroom and you're, you you know so being a you know you have to have a. <laughs> your conversation reminds me of many different conversations I've had about journalism with people that we're all sort of facing this struggle and you're, the LGBT community certainly has been hit hard as you've described, but you know, you have to have a passion to be a journalist. You have to be, be a passion to cover the types of stories that you're, you're covering and uh, be optimistic and hopeful, I guess. Yeah. I don't have any other, uh... I don't have any other skills. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is all I have. This is all yeah. I want to do. So I don't, if you feel that way, I mean, there's, I'm just saying like, you basically have to feel that way to want to continue in this work. Otherwise, if you have anything else you can do, <laughs> then try that. Yeah. Have a, yeah. You know, maybe have that backup. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, we've all, we've all kind of painted ourselves into a corner here. Right. right? And I guess we're just gonna have to deal with it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.